Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to episode 49 of Strangers in a Cinema. With myself Paul Anderson and my co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I am doing okay. I've had a weekend afflicted with a sort of trapped nerve in my upper back, which has made it a lot less uh, enjoyable than maybe it would have otherwise been. But I got myself here for the show. Didn't want to miss it. So um, yeah, we're three strong this week as we were last week with producer Jack on board as well. How have, how has your week been then? Uh, my week has been quite interesting, to be honest. Yeah, it sounds um, like it. Yes. Uh, what was we had? Uh, we had an evening of what I described as dicking around in the studio on Thursday, uh, of which you will probably start to hear the results in the next uh, next couple of episodes. We're not quite ready to reveal what he's yeah. been doing yet, uh, unless but, um, all of those results go directly yes. in the bin, uh, we'll which, they, which they might do, or, or they might be quite funny. We'll, we'll see how we feel. But, but shortly after that, and, and I feel it is, it is relevant to uh, is relevant to today's uh, episode, in which we'll be talking about Spider Man Homecoming, uh, amongst other things. But uh, yes, I was woken up uh, at three in the morning shortly, I say short, it was fairly shortly after we'd had a few beers and we're, and we're doing some experiments for future episodes, shall we say. Uh, woken up at three in the morning and my uh, my girlfriend, Laura, uh, had awoken to find a spider had crawled into her ear. Yeah, this this stuff is so horrifying that I think you've got to tell a sort of a bridge version just for the sort of... I don't know, fear of kind of unsettling the, the listeners beyond repair. So, so uh, I was woken up, half cut, I will be honest, with a light going on, with a lot of noises I didn't really understand, I didn't entirely understand what was going on. Uh, by this point, I was like, well, I'll phone the, 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 the NHS and, and see what needs to be done. By this point, um, she put a load of water in her ear. Uh, and tried to flood the thing out, which I kind of get in this state of panic. I fully understand that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone would have like the rational way to react when you see spider legs yeah, yeah. poking out of your ear. Yes, which which is what happened. So uh, we were advised to go to A and E. Uh, we went to A and E, and thankfully all was okay. All was okay. I think by the time we got to A and E, I think it had left her ear because obviously it didn't want to. I imagine crawling into the pool of water that was in her ear canal. Um, so yeah, it was quite an eventful week. But just if you want some advice on how to actually deal with it, if you do wake up with a spider in your ear, which I suppose which there is a chance of happening because it happened, um, pour some olive oil in your ear because the olive oil is thick enough not to go through into the in between the layers of skin in the ears, and also uh, is thicker than the weight of a bug or whatever's called into your ear. The, the bug in your ear will drown and float to the surface, and you can drain your ear from oil. And that was a public um, service announcement brought to you from Strangers in a Cinema. You're yes. welcome, world. Uh, back to films. <laughs> Indeed, man. Uh, yeah, so as always, we have loads to get through on the show. We'll start in the foyer where we'll talk about an issue that's cropped up this week in the film world. Then we'll get to the popcorn movie section, a section that I'm increasingly uh, prone, prone to the idea of sort of changing the name of it because of the way that people eating popcorn in the cinema is driving me to distraction. Perhaps but that's this week. That's yes. our regular uh, roundup of films that yeah. Paul and I have seen in the last seven days. Then we'll get into our um, features section. So this week the feature reviews as we've already let on as one of them is is Spider-Man Homecoming it is Spider-Man Homecoming um, yeah. and also um, It Comes at Night totally relevant to your horrendous story yes. about your girlfriend as well yeah It Comes at Night's the second review and then we've got um, a little bit of a tweak to the homework section which we'll explain when we get to the end of today's show but yes. for now let's get into um, yeah this thing that we pulled up a story from uh, well various places on the internet I've got the story here on Deadline but this is to do with Emma Stone speaking up about the fact that some unnamed uh, male co-leads in films that she's been a part of have taken a pay cut in order to be on the same money as her. Um, this is because she's in this new... Uh, is it B- Billie Jean King that she's playing? Uh, tennis movie, right? I don't know. This, ba- this ba- is the ba- first I know of it. Ba- Battle of the Sexes. Battle of the Sexes is the name of the film. I'm aware of Battle of the Sexes. Steve Carell? And it is Billy Jean King. You've made me doubt myself. Am I correct? Steve Carell also in this? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Battle of the Sexes, yeah. Sorry, I wasn't aware it was about Yeah, that. so so yeah. it's obviously relevant to the film that she's currently in, in production with and um, it just bears thinking about, I suppose, at this point in 2017, the fact that there can still be female stars in Hollywood who are on less money. Just, she, I'm going to stop you there. What the fuck? Yeah, I mean, she cites this <laughs> four-fifths pay idea as looking at the sort of broader scope of Hollywood. Uh, that seems to be the case. Now, there are also... The, the idea exists that sort of the biggest quotes in Hollywood is, I think, the industry term for the amount of money that you can command for films that you're in... Uh, 
belong to men, but largely because there just are more roles for largely white male actors. I think it's. I think it's. It's still. It's still fundamentally a problem because I, I forget who it was that said it. It was another film, fairly fairly well established female actress said that it was. It was kind of weird that you have these. Uh, you have kind of fifty-year-old male actors, Tom Cruise, uh, and let's take for my from for my money an example being the recent release, The Mummy, which is terrible, with like a twenty-five-year-old female wife or or, or love interest, mm. which just doesn't happen in real life. Yet within every Hollywood film, and it still seems to be the case that you have female actresses playing literally playing opposite other halves that are 20 to 30 years their senior now I'm not saying it doesn't happen in real life because it does and there are age gaps in loving relationships I'm not knocking that at all but in Hollywood it seems ridiculous and weirdly enough and it's not a film that I'm going to talk about this evening but it's I watched um, Boys Don't Cry Mm. uh, last night in fact and I was sitting there watching it with, with, with my girlfriend and we made a comment what happened to Hilary Swank where she gone she won an Oscar for Million Dollar Baby quite a talented actress where did she go and I went oh she hit middle age she mm. won't and I you will see Hilary Swank again when she's older and yeah. I genuinely believe you won't and I think it's shameful and I'm not I think it's awful because Hollywood seems to have a problem with casting middle aged women this is going on from this is going on from obviously what you brought up but mm. just Hollywood's treatment of women is still shameful is what I'm getting at yeah I mean and that plays into exactly I think what maybe Emma Stone's talking about in the sort of um, the fact that males will take more of the roles therefore they can begin to up and up and up their quote yeah. or their, their fee for a film because obviously if your career is consistent from the age of sort of 20, 25 all the way through your sort of early later and late middle age as a male actor you're obviously going to be moving on the up and up you're not going to take less money for a large film than you did your last one but two other examples diane lane ashley yeah. judd they've yeah. started to reappear now they're in their 50s yeah and they look like well they look amazing for their age let's mm. be frank they're very attractive women they look amazing for their age but they've started to look like they might be older women for example but there was I would say probably five, at least five to ten years, where Diane Lane and Ashley Judd, who were massive in the eighties, have just disappeared off of disappeared off of the radar. Yeah, and I think you you touched on also an interesting point there that they look amazing, they look yeah. great for their age. Now more power to them, but when it comes to males, we don't even have that. No, conversation. there's no, there's nothing. There's no, there's is he nothing. good looking yeah, yeah. enough no. at, at forty or forty five or fifty? Or it, it doesn't matter because what I, what I was trying to say with that though is I don't know why they stop. Uh, there's no, there's no reason for them to stop casting them if they worried they didn't look beautiful. They're wrong because they did. That's what I was getting at. I wasn't defending yeah. them. No, no, no. I, yeah. I'm with you. I, I'm just saying that we don't even have that conversation when it comes no, to males no, because it's, it's irrelevant, even, yeah. right? It's they about that age, yeah. is this a good act? Actor, or is he yeah. not a good actor? Yeah. And his the, the appearance of someone like less standardly attractive can get them all kinds of interesting character roles. Whereas for yeah. females, those are just so much more limited. So yeah, I think that this film has obviously been a a, a good. Um, a good forum to kind of bring these issues out into the open again and when we're talking about women earning 80 cents on the dollar or 80 pence on the pound for our UK listeners you know then that is just not right and yeah maybe that's because there are more male leading roles but that in itself needs to be maybe addressed Mm. uh, in the future and if that can be then you know all power to the people who who find and sort of develop and build those roles for and women. more power more power to the male actors that are taking a pay cut as well, well. I'll give them credit I'll credit where credit's due yeah, yeah I well, mean well I mean, played well played do you know what Emma Stone name them name them and we'll applaud them mm. yeah right. she, she says if my male co-star who has a higher quote than me but believes we're equal takes a pay cut that I, that I can then match him that changes my quote in the future and changes my life and this is Billie Jean King's feminism and I love it she is a quality uh, man, equality, equality, equality. So, yeah, uh, the film I'm looking forward to, the issues I think are important to talk about, and we'll have to keep an eye on this, uh, you know, as we go forward with our reviewing of films. And obviously, we're not without culpability here, Paul, because obviously we have to be ready to equally cover films starring female leads and male leads. And I think we try to do that, we do a good job with that, but we can always sort of check ourselves on these issues, I think. I think that is that is an interesting point. The media, the media, I suppose, does have a responsibility really to go actually, you know, as much as all these major releases are coming out, maybe maybe we have, a, maybe even us have a responsibility to go, okay, maybe we'll bin off one of the bigger blockbusters to go, this was directed by someone in a filmmaking minority, whether it be whether they be female, whether they be a, a, a LGBT director or, mm. or something like that. Maybe, yeah, maybe the media does have a bigger responsibility to cover 
a filmic minority. And, he, and hopefully so, yeah, the tide is changing. I yeah. mean, we saw all the love for things like Moonlight, you know, mm. um, for things like Hidden Figures with a, a strong female cast. Yeah. So hopefully these things are changing. Hidden Figures was great. And the more that people speak up, the more they will. The more time's gone past since Hidden Figures, the more I like Hidden Figures. But The more yeah. time goes past on this show, Paul, the more we're inevitably drawn towards popcorn movies. So that's where yes. we're going to go next. Do you want to kick us off for this one? So I think we're going to do three on three this week because we haven't got a homework reveal. The reason being that we've been caught up with all kinds of spider in ear, yes. trap nerve in spine another, business this another week. Quite, another quite big event that will probably come come clear uh, later today. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot going on uh, at Strangers yes, HQ. So um, I'll, I'll open, if I may, do it, uh, with the first, of, the first of two Trey Edward Schultz films this week. Uh, I'm going to open my popcorn movies with Cretia. Um, right, so Trey Edward Schultz, the director of course. Is this his debut? Uh, it's a feature debut, yeah. Okay, it's his feature debut, which is also the director of uh, It Comes at Night, which is one of our feature reviews this week. Um, Cretia is, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, structured as a kind of, I'd say, a family drama, really, um, if you're looking to pigeonhole it, uh, where the uh, titular Cretia um, is a woman who is recovering from alcohol addiction and is invited back to. I believe, like a thanks, I believe it's a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, where I think I reviewed of, this one before on the show, actually. I, you, briefly, I, not or sure. it was in a countdown, yeah, or I don't know. I around it might have been the, the countdown. countdown. Do, so, so she returned to. She basically returns to her family a Thanksgiving dinner um, with people are treating her with kid gloves because she's clearly struggled with some form of addiction or another. Um, as the film goes on, it's evident that she is a recovering alcoholic. Um, and it's how kind of how that kind of how she kind of tries to fit back into the family, or obviously judging her, obviously treating. I mean, her she different. thinks she can, right? She thinks she yes. can sort of breeze she, back she, in she and she be a part of can, everything. And she thinks she can. She, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I really like this film. It's not an easy watch. Uh, it's it's very disturbing. Um, I would say almost from start till finish. Um, the the soundtrack is meticulously well done it's it's kind of this weird plinky plonky kind of psycho soundtrack mm. and I think what this does what this film does so so well is rather than just being oh here we have another family drama or the, another recovering alcoholic reappears and it, it could have been very trite and could have been that's been done and done well don't get me wrong but what Trey Edward Schultz I think does so well here is he manages to interweave horror tropes into a drama Mm. So you have these kind of scenes where she is so detached from the family. She realizes it's not it's not a stretch to to work out that she realizes she actually can't really reintegrate. And then she she you know she then there's a, there's a horrible scene where she downs a bottle of red wine and returns to the table, and it's horrible. And part of the reason it's horrible is because it, it's just done with it's done with such a like the way it's shot. It's shot like a horror film. It sounds like a horror film. The way it's reintegrated, it it feels like a horror film and. For these tropes, for the, to to mesh like family drama with horror tropes, I think works fantastically well. Pete, just brief thoughts on uh, yeah. Well, I was just gonna. As well. well, I was gonna add the fact that Brian McComber is the name of the composer. Is also the composer on It Comes at Night, so you can see the oh, influence. When we yeah. get onto that review, obviously, we can talk a bit, a little bit more about that. And Cretia Fairchild, as it goes, is the the actress who plays the the character at the centre of this thing. Is I believe the aunt of Trey Edward Schultz. Is a family member of his. Uh, Which makes it more interesting because when I when I read more into Trey Edward Schultz is that um, the Cretia's son in the film is called Trey, mm. um, and if you read into if you read into Trey Edward Schultz now, I'm, I don't want to I'm I don't want to overshare on his personal life, but this is listed on his Wikipedia page, so I think it's fair I think it's fair to talk about that um, is that he is I believe the son of a of an alcoholic father or a father that suffered from addiction so it's interesting that Cretia is a family member of the director and the son is called Trey so it's a very personal project absolutely and that, that um, comes over man like yeah, that whole sort of like queasy uncomfortable like you want to escape a bit like um, something like Festen where you've got this like family explosion of emotions and, yeah. you, and you can't look away but you kind of want to leave no but what's, no, but what's, what's so good about it is like the, the kind of family dinner when she reappears at the end as much as it, a lot of it, some of it felt like Requiem for a Dream in a good way, where he's kind of put, addiction is the horror here. It's a horror film about addiction, mm. but it's a much more grounded film than Requiem for a Dream, I think. It's a horror film about addiction, but there were certain elements where the way the soundtrack works is it almost at times certain scenes at dinner almost felt like not quite as intense as the sort of Chainsaw Massacre dinner scene and that kind of thing, where you it's just you just feel that uncomfortable. In you the feel those presence. influences yeah. there as well, I think. Yeah. 
So, um, my first choice for this week is the uh, film called The Ninth Life of Louis Drax, one that recently popped up, I believe, on, on Netflix. It's a hell of a title. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Um, this is directed by Alexandra Ayer, who is a director with a very sort of interesting, uh, some good stuff, strange back catalogue. Yeah, I mean, I discovered him in the, oh, about 2003. It's Switchblade Romance. Yeah, or Switchblade Romance, for your others around the world. Yeah, which I... I know has got sort of mixed reviews, but I found incredibly I effective. It's I think very good horror. I film. think the end of it maybe uh, fault like falters a little bit, but it is a powerful sort of visceral stuff. Then we've seen did he things, remake Hills of Eyes? Uh, yes, he did the yes. remake of uh, the Hills of Eyes. He's also done the Piranha uh, film, where which was. Uh, then made into a sequel which he wasn't involved in and um, also he did Horns with Daniel Radcliffe um, that was a mess something called Mirrors which I haven't seen uh, yeah just a, a weird collection of films though I think from Alexandra Ayer and now this thing now the film is uh, it's sort of front loaded with a sequence and not unlike the sequence in Magnolia where you've got all those you know vi- vignettes about yeah. um, coincidence around the world in this case though we have a uh, narrator who is a young boy who talks about how he is the uh, most accident prone boy in the world and then it sort of lists all of the accidents that he's had in his life and it seems so far so sort of like indie kooky you know and you don't know quite where this is going and how this film director has got involved in this project yeah as I wouldn't it, have thought this is something that would bear his name yeah so. as it goes on um, we're introduced to a couple of other characters one is Sarah played by Sarah Gadden a Canadian actress um Quite quite striking Canadian actress, so I think he's quite good in this actually. Uh, and then Jamie Dornan, that people will know as Christian Grey from the Fifty Shades of Grey series, he plays the doctor who is tasked with treating this young boy when he has what he describes, I think, as the one great accident or the big accident, which is the culmination of a load of accident accident prone years where something terrible happens to him and he finds himself in a coma. Um, from this point, we have a kind of like slowly unravelling thriller plot about what may have been the cause of the accident and whether it was indeed an accident. Uh, It turns out that his father, played by Aaron Paul, is somewhat estranged from his mother and there's a lot of friction in that relationship. And the film basically sets up like a load of red herrings. Now, maybe this is my problem with it. I think when we have these kind of whodunit plots and we want to leave the audience guessing, we necessarily, a lot of film directors or filmmakers, I should say, necessarily leave out important details about the characters in the film because that allows us to leave them open as sort of suspects. But the problem with this is we don't get enough character development to actually be sort of rooted in or care about the characters who are involved in the plot. So you get to a later point where we're supposed to, you know, be stunned at the revelations about this person's intention or the way, you know, this element, which we then get played back, related to another one and another one and another one. And I think, well, I didn't really care about any of these people. And this is all kind of stupid. Jamie Dornan works as a doctor, neurosurgeon, apparently, which for a start is a little bit laughable. Um He then enters into a sort of relationship with Louis Drax's mother. Uh, they, they like get off with each other in like a room in the hospital where the kid's in a coma like a a, a room away I mean the hospital seems to be populated by no one except for the boy who's in a coma and Jamie Dornan who can just sort of do what he wants it's all did you like it? no I did not like it sir (laughs) no it it all just kind of falls in on itself I think by the end and and it's kind of a head scratching one Um, but that's the ninth life the ninth life of Louis Drax honestly with that title don't bother with the ninth life of Louis Drax then from the sound of it maybe Uh, give his other eight lives a look (laughs) yeah (laughs) maybe so yeah what have you got next man Uh, I've got uh, Yawn of the Planet of the Apes Whoa, okay. Whoa, zing. Zing, I've thrown that one in there. Shots fired. Shots fired. What's wrong with this, Paul? Shots fired. I didn't care much for the other Planet of the Apes rebooted films. Uh, I quite like Rise of Planet of the Apes. I'm not talking about the one that's out next this week. I'm talking about uh, the recent, the last one, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I apologise, fans. This film got so much plaudits. And I saw it at the cinema and I thought, I don't get it, I'm bored. And I thought, do you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. I'll give it another punt. I'm happy to give it another go. I sat there again with it in advance of seeing War of the Planet of the Apes. 
And I'm sorry, people out there. I'm sorry, critics who liked it. You're wrong. It's just... It starts well. It starts fantastically well. I was like, okay, the bits of the initial... The scenes of the apes where the apes have made their home. It's quite emotional. It's just like, this is fantastic. You can get this great a performance out of mocap. Andy Serkis is flawless throughout. Don't get me wrong. The mocap's fantastic. And I was in. I was like, maybe I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'll take it back. I'm wrong. Maybe I was in the wrong mood. And then I did that thing where, which I'm sure we're all guilty of. Is just as I thought the film was ending, I started to write my letterbox review, and I thought it's going to end in the next three or four minutes. Uh, I liked the first half, and then as I wrote my, I wrote and published my letterbox review, and then I paused it to go to the toilet, and I realised I had half an hour left to run. I feel like these are like, extraneous details. They are extraneous <laughs> details, yes. Which I promise you, I wouldn't do before the podcast started. And I'm doing them <laughs> again, so, so I take it back. These are then, but they're not extraneous details because the film in the first half is is decent. The second half is so leaden, so leaden. This is just, the movie in which just, uh, apes uh, learn English from absolutely no ability to an incredibly proficient ability in about yes. five minutes. Yes, and then you've got the like, and then you've got some, and like all. It seems all the focus is put on the hum, is put on the ape characters, where the human characters just retarded. So, so to give me my biggest problem in the film is the one human character that causes all the fucking problems and shoots an ape at the beginning is then repeatedly brought back to meet the apes and then shock fucking horror. Uh, it causes a problem again. I'm sorry, Planet of the Apes fans. The second half of this film is just boring. And uh, I'm not that excited for Planet of the Apes. So with that in mind, one of our feature reviews on next week's show is going to be The War, of, War, of War the for the Planet, Planet of the Apes. Of the Apes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm, so, not, I'm going to say it again. Yawn of the Planet of the Apes. Strap yourselves in for next week's show, I guess, listeners. Um, second for me this week is a little film um, I discovered by the name of Bokeh. Bokeh, uh, for those in the know, is a uh, an expression used in photography, uh, SLR photography in particular, I believe, uh, whereby the background is blurred, particularly resulting in those like twinkly lights when you see something in, in great focus in the foreground and then the background uh, blurred out. This Did you not talk about this film last week? No, I did not, Paul. But, you know, stay... Maybe I, I thought you did but stay anyway. with the show uh, <laughs> yeah uh, so this is directed by uh, two directors Jeffrey Orthwain and Andrew Sullivan and it stars an actress um, who's familiar who would be familiar to listeners of the show that is Maker Monroe because Maker Monroe apart from uh, a couple of other things has been in It Follows and The Guest which are both films that we and love Independence Day Resurgence well yes let's not <laughs> and, and The Bling Ring if we're getting into mentioning ba- badness in, in droves but yeah um it very simply is a love story set in Iceland uh, involving Maker Munro's character and a character played by uh, the actor Matt O'Leary. They are clearly in love with each other. They go away to spend some time in this sort of picturesque environment. They wake up one morning and everybody is gone. So the film sets out with a fairly clear agenda, which is to explore the idea of, of sort of what it means to be not alone but alone with another person. You know, we spend a lot of our lives looking for that one person that we want to spend all of our time with. But in this film, you're led to believe, or not led to believe, you're, you're led to um, ponder what that would really mean if there was nobody else, no infrastructure, no social network, no one to contact, no one to comment on your relationship or interface with. So from that point of view, I did find it very interesting. And this is all set against this kind of um, deserted, uh, like barren, but beautiful Icelandic countryside. Um, I think the film maybe falters again a little bit towards the end. Um, it's maybe not quite sure how to finish or how to sort of bring the threads back together. However, I think there is quite a bit to recommend it, not least um, the soundtrack, the way that it's shot, the, the camera work in this for a sort of lower budget indie-ish film is, is, is quite beautiful at times. Um, it also obviously is going to bear comparison to things like um, The Returned uh, that, you know, I'm sure some of us have, have seen. Um, and The Leftovers even more so, I suppose, which I think is a series that, that many people maybe should catch up with if you haven't already, mm. which is all about a sort of event that happens I've heard, in the world. I've heard very good things about least, it. Yeah, some amazing... Yeah. Well, I've talked about it before. But anyway, that one, small film, uh, it's called Bokeh. Give it a look if you're interested in any of what I talked about. Paul, what have you got third? Uh, well, third would be my homework film, but uh, for the first time I think ever, I haven't done my homework. So um, I'm picking up something else in its place. 
um, which is the autopsy of Jane Doe uh, by the director of Troll Hunter, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce because I'd probably mess it up. Uh, so yes, the autopsy of Jane Doe directed by the director of Troll Hunter with uh, Brian Cox and M. L. Hirsch. Um, I knew very little about this going in, and in fact, I think the publicity was a little bit slim on the ground because I didn't even know it was by the director of Troll Hunter. So I went into it. I'm a big fan of horror, as you know. Um, unfortunately, this is a film of two halves, like a number of recent horror films that I've seen. Um, and once again, it sh- it's, a, it's disappointing to say that the first half is absolutely fantastic. I have not seen as as atmospheric a horror film in quite a long time. And the whole idea that you basically, like, a body is dug up, it gets brought into the mortuary, you know nothing about why the body is why the body's there, and then it's kind of half detective film, half horror film, where the morticians are trying to piece what's happened to the body and why she's there. It's fantastic. It's done so well. It's very, very jumpy. It's very, very atmospheric. And then, unfortunately, in the second half, it just turns into kind of cliched it's cliched zombie tropes and the dead are walking around and things just get a bit silly and it just gets a bit OTT doesn't spoil it it's still the first half is still enough to go this is a horror film that if you're a horror fan you should absolutely watch but I just I am left wanting at just wanting at how good this could have been if the the tone of the first half had been maintained third for me this week is something that I'm going to have to hold my hands up here. It's one of those times where we did a, a coming attraction and I chose to talk about something that's turned out to be absolutely god-awful. And that is uh, the Tom Hanks and Emma Watson vehicle, The Circle. Now, Paul reviewed this, I think, a, a couple of weeks back on the show, um, having caught up with it. And I got to see it for the first time just a well, few I days ago. I wasn't wrong, was I? You weren't <laughs> wrong in any way, man. Like, to me, and I maybe I may have to go back through my list... I, I'm going to posit that this is the worst film I've seen this year. Um, it, it's a film that makes that one... What's the one where Owen Wilson goes to Google and gets a job? Oh, the internship. Right. That's a terrible film. I've not seen it. That's but... a lot more enjoyable than this is. So this is about um, Emma Watson. Uh, her friend contacts her, a bit of networking. She can get her an interview at The Circle. The Circle is kind of like Facebook. Uh, she goes there. She is taken on and very quickly seems to work her way up to the ranks to the point where she can make company-changing, nay, world-changing decisions on behalf of everybody involved in this giant tech company without checks uh, or, or sort of measures taken against her. The problem with this film is that it's supposed to be about the the sort of um, minefield of modern technology and the uh, infringement of our own on our own sort of privacy, right, and our rights. But it just becomes a sort of infringement on your your time and your patience because the film pulls punches all over the place and then when it's not pulling punches goes so stupidly far that it becomes ludicrous. The whole Ella Coltrane. <laughs> aka boyhood uh, thread in this film yeah. is ridiculous and just undercuts oh, Jesus, the yeah. message that, that, bit, that one bit in particular yeah the, the, the we tracing won't, we won't yeah. get all into it but yeah like okay all I'm going to say about the circle is avoid 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 and then with the time that you would have spent watching this very sort of self-important back-slapping attempt at, at sort of skewering the status quo, go watch something like Nerve or even uh, the that other film that the guys who made Catfish made. I think it's called uh, Viral. Not great. Oh, yeah. Better or, than or this. Or just Black Mirror, as I said. It's, or just an episode or, of Black Mirror. Yeah. That's exactly what it reminded me of. The nosedive episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah. Go watch that. Yeah. Like, 100%. We talked about this, yeah, when Paul did his review, but this thing is... is oh, it, it's awful. I could. I don't even want to rant about it as much as I could because I think it's just going to bring me and everybody else down. But truly hateful filmmaking, really, really bad. So that brings us to this week's feature reviews, which we may or may not have previously mentioned. Are uh, John Watts' Spider-Man: Homecoming? And uh, Trey Edward Schultz, who we mentioned earlier, his uh, latest effort, uh, It Comes at Night. I think we'll open with Spider-Man Homecoming, Pete, which, um, yes, is very relevant this week, I think. <laughs> yeah, Spider-Man came right right home to your house, I guess, on Thursday <laughs> night and right into your girlfriend's ear. But, yeah, this one, um, the latest instalment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, 
uh, what the re reboot of Spider Man? Yes. I, I guess. I think. I think it might be. Yes. Uh, this one stars Tom Holland that you might know as the little kid who sort of was uh, survived the tsunami and uh, the impossible, and, and probably as... will know as Spider Man from um, Avengers: Civil War. Or True, whatever that was called. True. Yeah, that's where he, he first sort of made his debut in the cinematic universe. Um, the guy is seemingly being cast in absolutely everything now. Um, and I think here it gives a pretty strong showing. I mean, to set this one up, uh, Paul, can can you you're going to do a better job than me? I think of setting up something in the the market. Yeah, I think I think it's, it seems to be um, it seems to the point where I am a I am a bigger fan of the MCU than you are, but that gap is narrowing. I think with with the more and more films that come out. Uh, but yes, what's quite refreshing about uh, Spider Man Homecoming is that we don't get the usual the usual kind of uh, the really kind of really annoying origin setup thing so basically we at least with this film we start and tom holland is spider-man yeah um, which is which is very refreshing well what, well, what we do get um, which is mercifully brief is just tom holland saying to his school friend the asian lad that he hangs yeah. out at school uh, oh i was bitten by a spider and then the, his mate yeah. says can i be bitten by the spider and he says the spider died and that is it yes that and is all we need so he's already he's already spider-man um he is he's been given he's been gifted the spider-man suit by um by robert downey jr's iron man um tony stark and we go from there really and he kind of as he's trying to i believe he's trying to remain down to earth he kind of comes across a a really high-tech bank robbery um which has been orchestrated by michael keaton's uh arms dealer who is basically stealing kind of alien technology from previous avengers films um, which is the best way I can describe it, really. Yes, My- Michael Keaton's arms dealer, we should say, who becomes the uh, the villain, the Vulture, having been Birdman, having been Batman. Yes. So there's something about him and uh, and Very flighted yes. creatures. And I, I, I guess. think that that kind of that kind of sets sets up the film really without giving many plot spoilers. The, yeah. the plot isn't really key here, is it? Right. No, well, it's but... all about uh, Spider-Man now trying to balance the life of a regular high school kid with all that is entailed by being the Spider-Man, and and what. I liked about the way that they not set up the, uh, the the plot stuff in this film but set out this like character's arc is that when he gets these powers he's kind of rubbish at using them and yes. I think that's played for like quite a lot of laughs and it's quite like there's a lightness of touch to this film and there's sort of a, a comedy which works I think and I think it, it, it is very funny I think well I say very funny I think it is probably too strong a, a number especially uh, two or three people in the cinema which is why I get frustrated going to the cinema to see films like this found this film possibly the funniest film they've ever ever seen right well um previously we had um spider-man played by help me out andrew garfield no before toby Maguire. thank you toby Maguire in spider-man 3 did that sequence where he like did a little dance and it was like oh light light-hearted spider-man but with what i perceive to be a fairly self-serious actor whereas i think tom holland does a better maybe andrew garfield would fall into that bracket as well yeah tom holland i think is an actor who embraces that kind of more naturalistic side of the character and he feels more grounded than maybe he did in either of the other I- yeah. iterations of spider-man so yeah. that's definitely in the i think positive i think well. i think I'm, I'm gonna go i think i i think i'd like this a bit more than you yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna go with positives go um, and then you can come in you can come in if that works um i'm going with positives i don't think this film did a lot wrong mm. for a genre piece for a superhero genre piece i don't think this film did a lot wrong uh i very much liked tom holland uh, i thought he was funny i thought the tone of the film was great it was a lot more light-hearted i really liked how for a lot of the time you had this whole thing about okay well this is more grounded I found some of the references to the other Avengers characters a bit frustrating and kind of John Favreau's presence. I don't like John Favreau's face. I'm sorry. I find it very frustrating. I think it's money. Um, yes, I think it might just be money. Yes, I found his presence kind of frustrating. And But I kind of like the the idea that this is supposed to be more grounded and as, as Tony Stark says, be a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Now, I like that concept. And to start with, the film is like that. My problems with the film start is where they kind of lose that idea that this is supposed to be a more grounded superhero movie and then suddenly things just escalate really, really quickly. And it's the same problem I have with all of the Avengers movies is there is suddenly a threat that should command all of the Avengers that need to be there. And I liked Michael Keaton a lot as the villain. I thought he was very, very good as he's very, very good in a lot of things. 
but I thought as much as it started grounded, I thought it ended with such a such an OTT kind of end sequence that just needed the other Avengers there to sort it out. Like he, I thought Michael Keaton became too much of a threat that Robert Downey Jr. would have just ignored and got involved with at the end. Um, that being said, <laughs> coming with the positives here and ending. No, with no, I, no, no, because no, I'm, but I, I enjoyed the film a lot. There is a lot worse ways you could spend two hours in the cinema. Had this been, had this occurred, had this been a film that had been released sort of six or seven years ago, I'd have come out of the cinema going, oh my God, that was amazing. I really enjoyed that. What a refreshing take on the superhero genre. What I took from it was a fun, but very generic superhero film. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I don't know that the, the criticism, a very generic superhero it's film. It's not a criticism. It just is what it is but but then isn't that what almost all of it is not just this film but almost every superhero movie in all of these universes is a fairly generic superhero movie like we have very little that breaks away from that apart from things like maybe Deadpool and uh, no, you know, I agree and one, one right. it's not necessarily even a criticism it just is what it is it's a solid genre piece um, yeah I, I basically agree I mean I, I don't dislike John Favreau as much as you do. I think that, that there is a, a really strong performance from uh, the actress Zendaya. Zendaya, yes. I think is her name. Uh, she cropped up in the Lemonade film that Beyonce made, and she's going to be in um, the P.T. Barnum film with Michelle Williams and Hugh Jackman okay. about the, the Great Showman, which is coming up this year actually, which uh, is something to look out for. And yeah, she has this this role where she gets to give these like really dry line readings for everything because she's sort of a disaffected member of the student body who just kind of rolls her eyes at everything and I really enjoyed that stuff um, I think like a lot of the the Marvel and DC movies it runs slightly too long um, I think it's a shade over two hours I would agree uh, with that, could, yes. could be trimmed by may, maybe not loads here but 10-15 minutes perhaps um, but yeah as you said Paul I, I co-sign on the fact that Tom Holland is very good Michael Keaton's very good um, we've got a couple of other performances I think worth a mention one is Marissa Tomei who I think is doing you know really really good work in a sort of later stage of her career right? yeah. I suppose later I mean she, she's what 40 but yeah later given that she was an actress who, who blossomed in so many movies when she was in her early 20s um, Donald Glover crops up in this thing I don't know if he's been in the MCU up to this point I don't think he has been no but I would assume little, he's probably going to have a bigger role. Bit, um, I mean, I think he feels like he's a bit too cool for this and probably everything else. But um, yeah, he was good in that Magic Mike movie, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I, I pretty much I liked it. I feel like, a lot like you, man. Like I liked the trouble it. Is, I liked it. It's kind of equal praise, equal criticism. Like I liked it. I just it was exactly what I expected, and that's not really a bad or a good thing when it comes to the Marvel superhero movies. Now, it just felt. Like yeah, that's what it was, and I liked it for what it was. I, I would say, but, I would yeah, say that I, I'm I'm happy going forward that Tom Holland is has taken on this role, and I'm happy that when the next Superman, you know, solo Superman project, Spider-Man project, Superman project. Sorry, listeners, it's been a long day. Uh, <laughs> the next Spider-Man project is released. It will be with. Tom Holland involved yes. it seems yeah. like so yeah I, I think it's in capable hands I think that, that they've got the tone just about right I wish it was a little bit shorter I wish yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost a difficult film to review because you go yeah it was uh, it was a superhero movie and it did well enough at being that yeah and, and it did a really good <laughs> yeah. job of setting it up and it did a really good job of not taking itself too seriously for the most part which, which I think a, is yeah which is definitely a relief in, the, in credit, the days sure. of a lot of stoic lead and superhero movies so yeah um, a lot of fun um, you'll probably already know if you like it before you go in it's almost it's kind of Marvel films are kind of review proof really but um, yeah one of the better ones certainly absolutely so that brings us on to our second feature review of this week um, Paul mentioned earlier on that he had caught up with Cresha we talked a little bit about that film it was the feature debut of Trey Edward Schultz and he has returned with a sort of social drama horror home invasion creepy slightly undefinable film called It Comes at Night uh, Paul do you want to set this one up shall I set this one up it's up to you really man uh, I'll t- I think I can set it up. So um, basically, opens uh, with one of my favourite actors working today, Joel Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton. Edgerton. He loves him so much he can't yeah, say I can't his even name. Say his name. Yes, Joel Edgerton. Um, kind of in it's. I, I think it's a kind of post-apocalyptic setting, or it's kind of left vague, which is to the film strength. Something's happened. Um, something's happened. He's left with his family locked in a house, um, and it opens with a really horrifying scene of, I believe, the grandfather. 
um, going down with a virus uh, and then getting burnt alive. And the film kind of goes from there, really. It's a very, very, very bleak film. Um, I would say if you're looking for a comparative piece, kind of similar in tone to like The Girl with All the Gifts, or if you're into video games like The Last of Us, that kind of post-apocalyptic kind of grim setting... And it goes from there, really, where they they kind of they wake up and someone's broken in, and it's the, another it's another guy looking to help out his family. I think is that a decent enough setup, Pete, to yeah. set the scene. Yeah. So the, the whole thing is sort of like this um, hermetically sealed environment in which Joel Edgerton has to do everything, and he's clearly going to do everything to protect his nearest and dearest. And when um, the guy is Christopher Abbott, the the actor who plays the guy who sort of tries to break into that environment yeah. is treated with obviously a lot of distrust and disdain by Joel Edgerton's uh, character and then it turns out that a deal can be struck whereby his family will be given refuge within the house but then we've got this setup where two families are trying to cohabit in an environment that is clearly at threat from something that may at some point attack quite possibly in the night time um, I really, really liked this film for many and um, sort of varied reasons. But I want to start off by talking about like the tone of the whole thing and the look of this film. I don't think in recent memory I've seen anything as beautifully lit in terms of something set at night time and mainly in the shadows and in darkness since I played the video game Inside, which I don't know if I've shoehorned into this show before, but uh, if you don't know, it's an indie no, game. I, but that's, a, that's an interesting comparison, actually, yeah. yeah Inside was brilliant. It's the kind, of, the kind of film where the director has managed to draw your attention to, you know, small sources of light creeping into basically darkness whether it's like a, a lamp here or it's a, an open cracked open door there or it's someone furtively looking around a door into an area where they shouldn't go like the 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 control is for example we talked about that film um about the home invasion with the blind guy tell me again don't breathe thank you yeah about don't breathe and i think that like that was very effective, but this is like a cut above. I mean, for such a young this is, director, this is one of the. I mean, I you know, this is. Uh, we talked about the guy who did the soundtrack for Creature. I've, I've forgotten his name. I, my, I apologies, but it's the same guy that's on soundtrack duties again. And I think the, the soundtrack, it, the soundtrack helps. This is. It's 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 weird. The coincidence is weird. This is in a week in which I've seen the first half of the autopsy of Jane Doe, and then. All of It Comes at Night are two of the tensest horror films. I'm saying horror in inverted commas here. Two of the tensest horror films I've seen in a very, very long time. And the atmosphere that is built very, very quickly and the sense of dread that pervades It Comes at Night is almost second to none. It's such an atmospheric film. And obviously, such an atmospheric you know, film. It, it goes without saying that, you know, this film brings to mind It Follows or, you know, older films that have this mysterious It at the centre and we talked about this off mic but like there has been this criticism levelled at It Comes at Night that we never really find out what it is and my feeling is that you've really got to you've got to work a little bit harder I mean and also it, a title doesn't need to be literal right. I don't understand where we live in this world where a title needs to be literal but, it doesn't but, need to be but for me it, right. getting towards you know the, the conclusion of this film like it's very apparent what it is and the way that the film finishes and the sort of the the goal that the director has for want of a better word to finish with the shot he does and without the kind of clearly wrapped up ending that many people were, were obviously clamoring for i think is to the film's eternal credit really and i think that it, it makes it a lot more interesting than it would have otherwise been perhaps um i completely agree i completely agree and the, the dream sequences the kind of i think the, the kind of more obvious horror payoffs that people are looking for appear in dream sequences and then don't appear at all in in the film proper for want of a, a mm. much better description. And I think yes, it's it's the sense of mystery. It's when the it's when they said you know that in in one of the posters you've got just the shot of the dog looking at something and the dog runs off, and then the dog re, re, crops up again later on. And you go ah oh, they're going to follow the dog and you go but you don't need to know you don't need to know what it is. The film is not about it. And the film is about people's relationships in a horrifying situation and that's, and that's where the horror comes from right and not that's, about what it is that's such a strength when particularly as you you highlighted the, the scene with the dog like 
the horrors that occur with that dog happen off camera and that to me is a lot more terrifying than if we saw some kind of monstrous creature in in reality or whatever it might be the threat out there or and it's exactly it's exa- and it, it's and again just to bring it back with the to bring it back to a, a, a comparison to the autopsy of uh, Jane Doe which was such an effective horror film when you didn't know what was going on the autopsy of Jane Doe fell down when suddenly there's loads of apparent zombies and corpses running about and it ruined it mm. whereas because uh, it comes at night doesn't show anything you are just on the hook from beginning to end because you don't need to know what happens and it's much it's a much tenser film for it and i just i think it was a, a fantastic i yeah. really really like it and then we're left because we don't have the exter- those external things we're left with the strength of the performances in that confined space and as you mentioned earlier on i mean joel edgerton is on perhaps career best form in this film i mean he's such an underrated the guy has the face of a sort of handsome but like late late career boxer or something like he looks like he's taken an absolute pounding and in this film I mean that works fantastically well to evoke the kind of environment that you know that he's living in and all the sort of fears that surround him the the performance by the other members of that ensemble are fantastic as well we've got Riley Keough in in here as the uh, the the wife she is making some amazing choices yeah uh, well American Honey uh, maybe Mad Max Fury Road of all those Um, and yeah yeah, so just just a really really strong set of performances. I want to remember the guy again who was going to mention Christopher Albert. I said is the, the mm. husband who comes into the house. He was in uh, one of my favourite films of the last five years, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Is he the son in Creature as well? I'm fairly I think sure he might he is. Be. I seen... think he plays Trey. I think he actually plays Trey. Well, Trey. He not seems necessarily very familiar shots, to me. I think he may be the son in Creature as well. But yeah, uh, I, I think mistaken, I, but... I'm slightly attracted to him. But also, he's a, <laughs> he's a very good actor. Yeah, I just think, like, yes, this isn't maybe what you think it's going to be. Maybe it isn't a standard Friday night shocker that you can take your girlfriend to. Then research to. what you're going to go and see before you go and see it. Right, and that and that probably gets us to like the end of this, where I just want to talk about like my experience in the cinema I, yeah, right, so, yeah. with this film. Yeah. So. In the cinema, as I sat down, uh, I went to this one on my own and there were some people a couple of rows in front, a sort of middle-aged couple, and they moved once they saw that their seats were available in various parts of the cinema to the row directly behind me, at which point they started like kicking my chair and munching popcorn very loudly throughout and comment- commenting and commentating on like chunks of the film at almost normal speaking now, volume. And it's such an atmospheric film that these people clearly have no understanding of how horror works. You need to build an atmosphere. Right. And I, I posted something like this on, on social media, but like, if you are that person who cannot go to a film without talking about the film or talking back to the screen as if you're at some kind of child's pantomime, maybe going to the cinema is not for you. Because we can't do this as a society where we engage in an act that demands that we all respect the needs of the people around us and then completely ignore those needs. And also, I, you can't then come out of a film and go, that wasn't scary, if you've talked over the fucking of, film and of ruined the atmosphere. Of course it's not. Of course, of course it's, not. it's not, because you've broken the atmosphere. And, and to link back again to, you know, the unfortunate events of Thursday night... Um, this is a film that needs to crawl inside your consciousness and it it needs to sit with you and you need to think about what it means to you as a human being and how maybe that that meaning is fairly unsettling if you let it sit there if you don't it's not going to work but to second that i went to see it this morning in fact a a, a morning screening and i thought this is a gamble it's it's advertised a horror film i'm going to try and see this in the quietest screening possible and the trailers rolled the adverts rolled the trailers rolled and there was a woman sitting in the front row who decided that just as the film had started she was going to very slowly open her I think pasta pot and start eating her lunch so as soon as the atmosphere was built crinkle 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 and as we came out uh, we heard her say to a friend so I'm not being funny but what Mark Kermode said that was really good but what actually comes at night right and well, that I think nothing more needs well, to be said. Well, I, it? well I heard. But what actually heard, comes at night? Eighty-five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Ridiculous. Yeah, whatever. Rotten Tomatoes is a flawed uh, metric, anyways. I'm sure we've talked about before. But like, please stop going to the cinema. It's not for you. It isn't for you. No, it comes at night. Read about what you're going to. Don't just go. There's a horror film. I go and see that. Read about what you're going to see. 
and then decide whether it's for you or and not. And I hope when you leave the screening, multiple spiders crawl into your ears. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. The, well, on a positive note. It's a treat. Go and see It Comes at Night. It's a treat. It's uh, And in fact, I will say this. It's based based on my in my my screening wasn't as bad as yours. It only got four stars on my letterbox review. Possibly with privacy and no one interrupting me, it might even jump up to five. It's that good a film. It's brilliant. Go and watch it. Yes, uh, and yeah, it's it's. There's been some accusations of too much ambiguity. I, honestly, I think that plays to its strengths. Uh, yes. I, yeah, and I'm really excited about what Trey Edward Schultz does next because after like Creature, he's only Nils, 28 at the moment. Incredible, no, insane, yeah. incredible. Yeah, get get on board, please. Um, right. Well, that brings us to the final section of the show, in which we're going to change things up a little bit in terms of homework, which is a feature that we've had for I don't know ten episodes or something like that. Yeah. Um, we're going to change it a little bit because what we're going to do is each week there is going to be a homework assigned, but it's going to be assigned to maybe a different person. We're going to change that person at random. But for this week, Paul, we're doing something a little bit different, right? We are. This week, we are... Um, jo- well, Producer Jack, as you may be aware, has recently come on board the show. Um, Producer Jack is, uh, I would say, around about 10 years our junior, I think. <laughs> we, we take our average age. He's uh, So that would make him mid-teens. Mid-teens. Yeah. He's a mere mid-teens. boy. I'm about 12 years old. <laughs> yeah, he's a mere whippersnapper in comparison to, to, to myself and Pete. Um, so what we're going to do um, is we're going to try and pers- from our perspective in homework we're going to try and educate him and get him to watch some films that he, he previously hasn't seen um, so his first assignment and I think everyone's been waiting for this and if you haven't worked out why this podcast is called what it's called you will now so Jack your first homework assignment is Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train because we're, we're happy to risk sounding like pretentious dickheads, but we're gonna we're gonna make you watch an early nineteen fifties Alfred Hitchcock film. Uh, you've got no choice, and we're looking for a review on next week's show. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. Should be good. I've looked at the box. Uh, I will hasten to add though, if anyone does have the there's a, a box set that's come out of is it? There's a three Blu-ray Hitchcock box set. Oh, wow. that has also got um, a number of other films in it that I've completely two, two others oh, I yeah. would imagine yes two other, two other films in it North by Northwest is in that box set so if you have it um, I apologise if you if anyone has got this Blu-ray at home it has possibly the worst Blu-ray cover I've ever seen of a film that doesn't really bear any resemblance to it but Jack Strangers on a Train like Strangers in a Cinema is your homework that brings us to the end of this week's show um I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. And we're going to have feature reviews next week, Paul, of both Sophia Coppola's uh, previously previewed film, The Beguiled, and... And War of the Planet of the War Apes. War for the Planet War of the Apes, sir. Planet Get it right. Apologize. Yeah, we'll be back with those next week and a whole bunch of other usual stuff that we do on this here show. But until then, um, you can get at us on Facebook, Strangers in the Cinema, all the usual places. Our podcast is available in archived format at soundcloud.com forward slash Strangers in the Cinema. Check them all out, yeah. Tell your friends, pass them on, etc. Uh, Paul, any last words? Uh, stay strange. Stay strange. <laughs>